The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here is Dr. Christopher Urbina from the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention with his presentation, Safe Prescribing. I'm here to talk about safer opioid prescribing. So I'm going to talk about 101. We're going to talk about risk mitigation. So you're going to see some overlap with Stephen's slides. Because we we give common talks, because we do this all over the state, he does, and so do I, to talking to providers on how to prescribe opioids safely and talk about risk. And we'll cover that. You'll see some of those familiar slides. But I'm really here to talk to you and what you're interested in. So we're going to use a couple cases to describe common dilemmas. But whatever you're interested in, let's talk about Because I'm really here for you. So our goals today, we can talk a little bit about data, what the crisis is currently happening in Colorado, and some good news. We're going to talk about the CDC clinical guidelines, because many times I give this talk to primary care providers, like you, nurse practitioners, who are prescribing. So we want to give them uh, tools, because when I was practicing uh, uh, and giving out prescriptions, I had no tools. There was no such thing as a contract, a risk mitigation, stratification. We didn't know what that meant, nor did we know the side effects of these drugs that we were prescribing very heavily. I wish I knew no <laughs> then, but I do know now, and I think we've had less of a problem. So we're going to talk about tool, tools to assess those risks, go in deeper than, than Stephen was able to do, and then we're going to talk about available resources. First, the national data. You've seen this. I don't need to tell you this is a bad problem. Um, but I wanted to share this with you because I think it's important to recognize, particularly for social workers, particularly for folks who work in behavioral health, um, is that it's really just the tip of the iceberg when we talk about opioid overdoses. It really is. Many more people are affected by, by family members, the, the illnesses, the, the extended people who are misusing, people who are developing substance use disorder, is disorder that Stephen talked about, but we are all affected by this. So I think when we talk about overdose deaths, I really want to emphasize that it's really just the tip of the iceberg. State data, you've seen this data. I'm going to have you pay close attention to this last one. In 2017, we had over a thousand deaths related to overdose. A thousand deaths. How many people do you think were killed on the roads in Colorado? Driving. It's less than that. It's like six or seven hundred. And like, oh my gosh, this is a major problem. No one would tolerate this. So now we're dealing with this issue. The good news is, between 2017 and 2018, we had a significant drop in deaths. That's almost 10%. So I think some of the things that we're doing are making a difference. Hopefully, the information you're learning today will continue to make that difference. And we dropped the rate of prescription use from, uh, for, uh, in 2017, for, dropped it by 14%. Unfortunately, I didn't tell you that number. It was 2.6 million prescriptions in Colorado. 2.6 million prescriptions in Colorado. The good news is we dropped that to 14%. And from 2013, we dropped it by 30%. So whatever we're doing, I think it's all of the above. It's making a difference. So remember, stop me if you have questions. I'm happy to go deeper into the data. There are lots of treatment guidelines out there, and I 
I don't remember. What, what kind of work do you do? Perfect. Excellent. Oh, good. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks for what you do. There are only two practitioners here, and this is tailored to practitioners, so I'm glad you divulged that information. So this is going to be heavily medically oriented. Um, so please stop me if there's questions that you have about that. You know there are lots of guidelines out there. You know, you, if managing diabetes, as, as Stephen talked about earlier, you can look up books and books and research articles on how to manage this. It's true about opioids now. And we, as I alluded to earlier before you came in, there, we didn't have this information when I first started practicing medicine. We just didn't have it. I'm going to focus on the CDC guidelines because I think they're the best and the easiest to read. And I'm not going to read that to you, but I am going to read this to you because this is really the CDC guidelines in a nutshell. Because this is the take-home message. If you read anything else, this is really what I want you to remember. That opioids are not the first-line therapy. That, and as Steve talked about, and I'll refer back to his talk because we give talks back-to-back -back often. Usually I'm first and he's second. <laughs> but now I'm having to deal with him talking before me. Establish goals for pain and function. I think Steve outlined that extremely well. If you're not discussing with your patients, uh, your, your clients, what the goals are for function, you've, not, you've done them a disservice. You need to talk about the risks and benefits, and we'll talk a little bit about risk assessment, who's at greater risk, and how to stratify them. You need to talk about uh, uh, what you're going to start if you decide. And I have a couple patients that will discuss. Uh, if you're going to start, you start low, right? And you start with the smallest dose possible. Um, short duration for any kind of acute pain. I know if you're in an emergency room, um, you're not going to give out 300 Percocet oxycodone to go home, right? You don't do that, do you? Rarely, I would think. Um, often have to evaluate the benefits versus harm. Every time you give a prescription, whether or not it's an antibiotic or insulin or whatever, you're always evaluating the risk of harm. Opioids should be no different. When we talk about mitigating risks, now, how many folks have heard of the PDMP until Stephen mentioned it this morning? You have. Good, perfect. Well, the PDMP is very important. It's the Physician Drug Monitoring Program. This didn't exist when I was practicing. I'll refer back to that a lot. Is that we didn't know what the patients were taking. So now we have a very ineffective tool. And the pharmacy, thanks to pharmacists, we now can work co collaboratively together to know exactly what patients are getting. And I think this is important to check that. I know you, there's another talk after mine that's going to specifically talk about urine drug testing. I think it's going to be a good talk. I know her. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the highlights of urine drug testing because it's very important. And then we always talk about benzodiazepines. And Steve referred to it a little bit earlier this morning. You missed his talk. It was a great talk. But benzodiazepines and opioids is bad. It's bad. Don't do it. And then, of course, offer treatment for opioid use disorder. And you heard that talk this morning. So... You can go if you want. This, that was the end of the talk, really. No, I'm... Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, that was a joke. <laughs> so you have a college student who comes to you for treatment of his knee pain. He had an ACL repair five years ago. He tells you he recently had a re-injury of the same knee. You know this guy, right? You've seen this patient. Um, five days ago, in conditions have pain. He requests pain medicine. He has no history of opioids. He smokes tobacco, marijuana occasionally. You know this patient. Um, and drinks on weekends with his friends. No family history of substance use. What do you do? Any thoughts? 
This is where the audience participates. Mm -hmm. Assess how much, like, is he still, is he playing sports? Is that how he injured it? Perfect, like, perfect. Uh, maybe recommend some PT. Um, I probably wouldn't give him opiates, but that's the first time we've met, and, and I don't have enough information, I guess. Perfect. This just brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> this is, I mean, I, this is exactly right. I mean, basically, you got to know the, you get to know the patient, right? You take a history. You take an exam. You don't say, here's a prescription, here's 50 oxycodone, 5 milligram tablets, good luck. Call me in the week. Because this is our challenge, is that we as providers, and she and I were talking about this earlier, we're largely responsible for some. And people say the pharmaceutical industry is responsible. Uh, yes, to a certain extent, I think they did market and they did have some uh, bad practices out there in terms of over-marketing their drugs. But we as providers also have a responsibility. And I'm one of the first to say that I contributed to this so that we have a responsibility. And if you look at the data, over 50% of people who started and continue to use opioids have actually gotten them from their providers or gotten them from a family member. So whatever we prescribe, and I had bilateral knee replacements. My knees actually stick together now, they're straight. And my orthopedic surgeon gave me 50 oxycodone. He was good about it. He said, you have to worry about constipation. He knew what, he knew what I did. <laughs> he said, you have to worry about constipation. Can't take him past seven days. He knew all those things. But he gave me 50. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to use this. I don't need those. He said, well, just take whatever you want. Just fill. You can fill 10 of them if you want. And I didn't do that. I filled all 50 so I could sell them on the... No, I didn't do that. <laughs> That's part of it. You know, his, his experience says, I give 50... You know, if they don't use them, they can throw them in safe disposal, you know, give them back, take them back to the pharmacy. But he was good about it. I used two days of them. So my second knee surgery, he said, do you want 50 more? I said, no, I still have 37 of them. <laughs> I can still use them, and then I just safely disposed of them. But we routinely, as providers, contribute to this. We also have to consider how we balance pain and relief. And we'll talk about that in terms of how we have referred for other other. Uh, physical therapy, other modalities. I think Stephen touched on that a little bit. But I think we as providers, maybe not in the emergency room, but we struggle with this because we don't have that multimodal uh, treatment that Steve talked about because we don't have that access to physical therapy as much uh, or we don't have access to acupuncture or relaxation therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and we'll talk about some of those things because it really is a, a plan that if we're going to recommend non-opioids, we have to talk about what should we be using. And as, as Steve talked about, there are patients come, like this young man, and we'll talk about his risk assessment, they often come with significant social, environmental, and behavioral health issues prior to coming to see us. That, and I am the only perfect patient out there. I had no advanced childhood events. You know, I, had, I, had, I, was, I was born rich. My college was paid. No, I'm joking about that. But that the issue is everybody has issues. And I think unless we take that history, unless we understand that, we're not going to understand what those issues are in, in dealing with these things. And then the important thing, and I think we're starting to see this, it's very important, I hear a lot about this in our communities, is that patients are now becoming abandoned, particularly the chronic, chronically, chronically ill patients that have pain. They're being said, sorry, we can't help you anymore. So these patients are now coming into the Denver Health Emergency Room asking for uh, ketamine and Keterolac and a whole host of medications and because 
us as primary care docs are starting to abandon these patients. It's very unfortunate. They're still our patients. So uh, it's important to know that there's a continuum of management of opioids. Because I do think there's appropriate use of opioids. It isn't all about misuse, abuse, substance use disorder. There are people, and I'll talk about that on our 201 talk a little bit later on, when you manage how to manage effectively pain with opioids, is that there's an appropriate role for opioids. There's still good medications that in, used in, in moderation or small doses can actually be effective to help, help our patients manage pain. So there are clients that are adherent, and of course there's the extreme is a substance use disorder, and Steve talked a little bit about that. So I think when you hit it on the head, took a history, this is, we would do this as a primary care provider with every single patient that came in. We take a very effective history. We'd include opioid risk assessment. I'm going to talk about some of those tools. We'd talk about alternative therapies, over-the-counter medication. In fact, I think that ibuprofen and Tylenol or acetaminophen actually work more effectively on my knees um, than the oxycodone because I was managing. I was also doing physical therapy. I was also, my wife was taking care of me. She ate great food. You know? I was happy. <laughs> but that's that, that emotional support, that's the environment that's dealing with all the issues around my pain, and I truly had pain. Checking the physician uh, 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 BDMP, and we talked about that, and we'll talk a little bit about trial, frequent follow-up, and documentation. So how do you assess risk? And I think it's important to talk a little bit about this because oftentimes we can identify those folks that actually would benefit from opioids long before they come in. So this young man, as you correctly observed, he would probably benefit more from physical therapy, ice, cutting back on his activity, um, uh, physical therapy, than he would ever taking short-dose opioids. So I, I agree with you totally. So if, if we have fully engaged patients, we have a definitive joint process, and we'll talk about that later on, Raghi. I'll talk a few, about a few other patients um, and older patients. Us elderly patients do better with opioids than younger patients. People at higher risk of abuse are younger people. No, no sorry, I don't mean to pick on you younger people. Um, people with a history of psychiatric illness. Uh, history of child sexual abuse. I think Steve talked a little bit about that. Anybody who has risk-taking behavior. The classic snowboarder who had an injury, <laughs> who jumps off cliffs, is likely to be not somebody who's a good candidate for opioids. Just, I'm just saying. Just saying. And he has to use the word like every other set and every other word. You know what I'm talking about. Like. Right? Okay. Um, does that make sense? So let's talk a little bit about a couple of these tools. There are lots of them out there. I would recommend that you as a provider become familiar with one or two of them. I don't know, Denver Health, they use soap, I think. Uh, I like ORT because it's a little simpler. So I'm going to use ORT in this, in, this, in this patient that we just talked about. But the sad news is they're studied in small select populations. None of them are truly validated, but they're all helpful tools that you can use to assess risk. So let's talk about this opioid risk tool. So if you read this clearly, anybody with a history of alcohol, illegal drugs, personal history or family history has a greater risk. So we go back and look at our patient, this young man who drinks, smokes occasionally, smokes a little marijuana, drinks alcohol, is probably low to moderate risk on this scale. 
he would score probably around five or six. So it's an easy tool that I can pull up on my EPIC or your electronic health record, pull it up, calculate it quickly, or have my medical assistant calculate this in your office, and come up with an easy tool of saying this person is risk. Remember Steve talked about this. Assessing risk, stratification, low, medium, high. And we'll talk about a high-risk patient in a few minutes. But this patient, low to medium, I would hesitate about prescribing opioids with this person. Soap, it's another tool. This is something I want to highlight before we go forward. Because I do think that needle, neonatal abstinence syndrome is a real disease. We all know about fetal alcohol syndrome. You guys know about it a lot with the clients that you serve. This has become a new and significant, I'll show you some data, significant problem for us. Uh, in, in, in terms of pregnant women who have substance use disorders, using narcotics, using opi opioids to manage their pain and alleviate other illnesses. So we're having a significant number of neonatal abstinence syndrome among uh, pregnant patients. Stephen alluded to a number, I think it's higher than he talked about. Um, but I think we have to use extreme caution if we're gonna prescribe. And if you're not asking every pregnant woman, are they using methadone, are they using alcohol, are they using opioids, we're doing a disservice to our clients. We have to talk about, to young people, family planning. When I worked at the State Health Department, you know, we were part of that movement to get teenage pregnancy solved, and we did. Uh, we dropped the teenage pregnancy rate by 40% in Colorado. How did we do it? Nexplanon <laughs> and IUDs, by making them freely available. Same thing should be true about our patients who are potentially suffering from substance use disorder. They're pregnant. We should be identifying this very early and preventing pregnancy if we can, but obviously if they want to, uh, but, but monitoring if they don't. Because three out of four patients, excuse, three out of four infants who are exposed in utero to opioids become, develop neonatal abstinence syndrome. Steve alluded to a much smaller number. This is the recent data, it's much higher. We've seen a four-fold increase in antepartum maternal opioid use from you know, uh, 1.19 hospital births to five, five, five out of a uh, thousand births, and a five-fold increase in neonatal abstinence. And this is a significant problem. And if you, again, uh, this is important to highlight. So let's talk a little bit about initiation. Initially, and we, remember we talked a lot, the CDC guidelines and what you should do with an opioid naive patient. Well, you should be checking PDMP, and, and for those who don't prescribe, it's actually very easy. It was hard to convince providers to use electronic health record, but now that everybody uses it, it's not a big deal. It, the PDMP is very simple. You just enter, your medical assistant can be delegated, you can get it, pull out every, all the information you need to know. That's important to have in front of you before you make a decision on when to start. So I'm not going to tell you which drug to use because that's not really not the purpose. We're going to talk a little bit about my 201 talk. But uh, you really should become familiar with a handful of opioids if you're going to prescribe and use them. Um, beyond three to five days, and I've used the example of myself who had uh, uh, bilateral knee replacements, I took them for one to two days. And if I, had, if I didn't have all the other multimodalities of physical therapy, ice elevation, uh, good food, uh, and plenty of rest, I think I would have probably used more narcotics. And the data shows that using them beyond seven days is that magic period of switching from acute use and potentially 
uh, uh, tolerance and a long-term opioid use disorders. So seven days is that magic period. In fact, Senate Bill 22 was passed actually with that, uh, that evidence. It now requires all providers, you probably knew this, you probably knew this, that you can't prescribe greater than seven days of opioids in, in, in acute issue. Um, and if you can't, if you, if you do that, you, it's illegal to do this. This is a felony. So it's a good thing, but now physicians were all up in arms. And when I traveled around the state, I was visiting a couple places in Delta, Montrose, and the providers actually had Senate Bill 22 on their front door. They said, this is great. Thank you for helping us, because we, we were looking for a tool that could say, no, we're not going to prescribe narcotics to you. So it can be helpful for providers to do that. And again, the exception is chronic pain. Uh, for those who have cancer or, or pal palliative care, you can, you can still prescribe more uh, opioids. So let's talk about case number two. Do you guys have any questions so far? Sure. In acute situations. Yeah. In long term, with chronic pain, then you're okay. So, 14 days. And the pharmacists are checking this, right? Okay. So you don't see it as much. Okay. Yeah. So, but anyway, the, I know at Walgreens, they're well aware of this. <laughs> and I do know that, you know, most primary care clinics are well aware of this rule. And you may not see it in the ER, but they are well aware that this is a law. So this is the second patient I want to talk about. This is a 45-year-old woman with a history of multiple surgeries for abdominal pain. You've seen this patient, right? Okay. Uh, chronic pain, she's been described a high dose of opioids. She comes into your office because she can no longer go to the pain clinic. Right? This is very common. History of smoking, history of sex abuse, also history of anxiety and depression. She's on an SSRI, uh, which is a serotonin... A reuptake inhibitor um, for uh, her depression and, uh, and anxiety. And she, you look at her PDMP and lo and behold, she's gotten several prescriptions from several doctors prior to seeing you. What do you do with this patient? Anybody? You guys know. You give them 300 Percocet and you say, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't. No, but I think this is probably the, the heart, one of the hardest patients that you see on a regular basis in the emergency room. This is, these are what we consider our chronic or legacy patients that I contribute to, you know, that I, I'm guilty of that. They were never good candidates for opioids in the beginning. They were taking opioids for who knows what the reason they were, they were associated with it. We never really addressed their anxiety. <laughs> their PTSD, their history of sexual abuse. We never really addressed those. They came in with pain. We did a few tests, and, and we discovered that they had pain, truly. Maybe that was their complaint, and we gave them our opioids. And unfortunately, because we never really addressed the behavioral issues, they continued with this cycle. And we'll talk about that in my second talk when we talk about uh, uh, soap, uh, substance use disorder, the whole issue around tolerance and hyperalgesia and those things, because it's important. Uh, Steve alluded to that earlier. In this patient, uh, uh, when, we saw, when we assessed the risk, and if I did the ORT on this patient or the SOAP, I discovered that she is at, there are flashing lights on this patient. 
She is one of the highest risk patients that you could ever imagine. She was kicked out of the pain clinic um, because she was uh, abusing her uh, opioid prescriptions. So she's coming to you for help. And Stephen did a nice job. This would be a, be a patient where I would consider medically assisted treatment. If I couldn't manage it, and I didn't have the, if I couldn't have suboxone induction in the emergency room, or if I didn't have suboxone induction in my primary care setting, I would make the referral for this patient because I could not effectively manage her, uh, her medication because she's at that extreme of substance use disorder. So, um, but she also has other problems. She has anxiety, depression, she might have diabetes, and I'm not gonna abandon this patient if I, because just because I can't manage her pain or manage her opioids, I'm gonna continue to establish a relationship with this patient because in my mind, we don't wanna abandon the patient we want to change how we're, how we're managing her pain. Because for, for, for her in this situation, and I might consider a taping trial, and we'll talk a little bit about more, more about this, but she's going to be a challenge regardless of what we end up doing. So, again, the final, final piece is be critical of the treatment, not the patient. And uh, Stephen did a nice job of, of talking about risk uh, and destigmatization uh, in his talk. So the approach to the chronic pain patients is the same. You know, there's really no difference. And I put this up here because it's just a reminder that, that, that how we manage our patients is really the same. We're, we're trying to treat everybody equally and fairly. So if we, we need a history, physical exam, do testing, we're going to establish a consent or an agreement or a contract, as, as Stephen alluded to, and I'll talk a little bit about those. But we have to check the PDMP. We have appropriate dose. We have follow-up, monitoring strategies, and we'll talk all about all of these. So... I'm probably going to change this slide because I think Steve made the, the strong point that this is really an agreement. It's, it's not really a contract. So I think once we say a contract, that means you have to, if you uh, develop a contract and they fail, well, then they failed and we kick them out. That's not what we really want to do. We want to establish an agreement. So I'm going to probably, based on my learning from Steve's talk this morning, I'm going to change this slide to an agreement because I think that's probably the, the better strategy. It's also a good time to talk about risk versus benefit, to develop an exit strategy if you need one, how are we going to monitor, how are we going to do all of these things, and to also discuss about how we refer. Because I do think that many times these patients are very, very challenging, and I think we need help. And I appreciated uh, Stephen Wright's uh, discussion around multimodal. We, don't ha we didn't have that in my primary care setting. Uh, he obviously is a pain specialist, so he has access to it. But whether or not you're a social worker, a behavioral health person, or a pharmacist, or a, or a behavioral health, mental health person, we all need to work together, clearly, in managing these patients. And we need help. Clearly, the, the prescriber is really only a piece. That's where the patient is accessing. But we really need to manage this together. Uh, unfortunately, these contracts and consents are not well studied. Um, there are challenges. Uh, and I wouldn't be a public health person if I didn't talk about these issues. Because I do think that stopping the diversion, uh, preventing illegal drug use is part of our agenda. It may not be a part of the agenda for most primary care providers or emergency rooms. But our contribution to the community is equally as important. So talking about safe disposal, talking about safe storage is equally important. And I think uh, we don't want our children... Um, or their, our neighbor's children uh, getting uh, uh, our oxycodone if we're using it appropriately. 
very important to, to emphasize safe disposal, safe storage. So, and of course, no diversion. So this is the challenge, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, unfortunately, opioids are, are, were only indicated in the very chronically ill patients. They've not been studied, as far as we are aware of, in long-term use for chronic pain. We have patients using them for long-term use in chronic pain, but now we recognize that the studies are saying, move away from opioids. There are more effective strategies to deal with chronic pain that include all the modalities, but we're still stuck with these chronic pain patients. Um, so, and we're gonna talk a little bit about the greater risk of abuse and side effects and tolerance and hypoalgesia, but there are specific in indications, migraines, Totally, there's a whole subset of drugs that are much better at managing migraines. Fibromyalgia, duloxetine, some of the SSRIs, and norepinephrine uptake drugs are much better in fibromyalgia than, than opioids. And low back pain, I can tell you, I suffer from low back pain, not less so than I have new knees, but um, there are better treatments for low back pain. You don't have to use opioids, even though that's one of the most common uh, prescriptions written. Um, a little bit uh, information about adverse effects. Um, who wants to inhibit their hypothalamic pituitary axis in the room? Anybody who prefer to like to do that? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. you do. You do as a pharmacist. You associate? We're talking about your hormones. We're talking about thyroid. We're talking about estrogen, testosterone. So opioids actually interfere with that axis. So. So it's a bad thing. <laughs> you don't want to have happen. And in women particularly, uh, if you use greater than uh, 50 morphine milli milligram equivalents, and that's, that's a small dose, your risk of fracture of your bones is increased two times. Significant issue. Um, I, I don't know how many times I'll mention today, do not use benzodiazepines. Did anybody go to Steve's talk this morning? I heard it was excellent. I've never heard him speak about it, but I'm sure it was excellent. And you heard from some patients in recovery, right? It's a powerful drug, and it's bad with opioids using them together. Um, I'll talk more about adverse effects. And this is a common problem that we're beginning to see. As we see the decrease in, in opioid prescriptions, our clients are churning now to marijuana, if they haven't already used it. Uh, CBD is now the greatest phase. You know, I, you can use CBD for everything. You can grow hair with CBD. You can use noise suppression with your dogs. I mean, you can use it. You use CBD, don't you? No, okay. Um, the, everybody uses CBD. Well, the truth is, it, it, it's still a placebo effect. But everybody's using it, and the people are making a lot of money. Um, so I discourage people to use, not, not use alcohol, not use marijuana, and carosperidol is Soma. So these are drugs that are contraindicated in the use of opioids. So that's just a word for urine drug testing. Remember we talked about the consent and contract. If we're going to prescribe opioids in any patient, whether or not it's even an opioid naive patient or a chronic legacy patient, we should be testing their urine. And it's a very simple test to do. There's point of source. You can do it. You can... But the, the, my take-home message about your do you use urine drug testing in the ER? Probably not. Yeah. 
You test them. They, they come in, they pee into this cup, and we're going to test you, right? Yeah, absolutely. I know, I tell my doctor every single medication, every single thing I've done or do, and that, because she asks me, right? Well, I don't. <laughs> I don't tell them everything, and I need to do our patients. So. Um, but there are limitations. Obviously, when you talk about urine drug testing with some of our patients, they run, go the other way, because they don't want to really reveal that they're also using meth, and they're also using cocaine, and using marijuana. So it's important to talk about those benefits versus the harms. But we used to think that we as providers knew everything about our patients. And I've given lots of talks to local providers and smaller communities around the state of Colorado, and they go, ah, know my patients. <laughs> I don't need to test them. And I go, ah, <laughs> I don't usually do that. I go, ooh, how interesting. <laughs> but the studies show that our intuition and the best guess about our patients just doesn't, isn't correct. We, we don't know what patients are doing. So we need to test them. Uh, and and we'll find, we find out actually we missed 60% of the use and abuse. Um, again, it's important that uh, out of lots of studies to say that uh, many patients took other drugs while they're using uh, opioids as well as we didn't, weren't aware of, so that's why it's important. So some retention times, just so you, before you go home today, make sure you clear the meth, methamphetamines from your system because um, it lasts in your system for two or three days. And you just need to know that. Uh, all the sprinters know that. Uh, all the uh, um, Tour de France racers know this. They know what their urine drug tests are going to show. So. Um, I'm not going to emphasize this. I only show this just for comic relief. Uh, the pharmacists know all of this. Uh, there, there are lots of metabolites. And, and the, the sad part about urine drug testing is it doesn't always work. The, not, there are specific tests that you actually have to use for methadone or meperidine. That's Demerol. You can't just use the standard urine drug test for all of these metabolites because it won't show. And if you're testing for alcohol, it only is very good for heroin, morphine, oxycodone, the really specific ones. For the semi-synthetic ones, it just doesn't work. Just so you just need to know that. Uh, lots of false positives and false negatives, just so you know. So if I come in with a patient, it's good to know that if they're taking a different medication, that that may turn out po falsely positive for an opioid when they're not taking opioids. And also, there are other medications that create false negatives as part of the interaction. So it's important to know those uses. I, you, I know that's, that seems confusing, that your doctor doesn't know everything there is to know about these tests. Well, it's true. We don't. No test is perfect. There are resources out there. Just a word about alcohol. Um, short uh, urinary detection time. It's probably better to look at the alcohol metabolites as opposed to pure alcohol. Uh, the, the breath analyzer tests are not as accurate as you think they are. Uh, they're just a screen, and that's why you actually have to get blood for them. Uh, you should do a, uh, often test everybody. Uh, at least once and periodically, particularly on your chronic pain patients. Um, and remember that, that the urine drug tests don't test for every metabolite. Actually, you have to look at and uh, decide which ones to order. So, uh, ongoing monitoring tools. Steve alluded to this earlier, and I'm referring a lot to Steve because there's some of you who are in that talk, so you understand that there is some overlap between our talks. One of the challenges for us as providers in prescribing opioids is that we don't ask enough. 
if it's working. <laughs> you know, is the medication that we're, we're prescribing to you, did it work? Because many times we don't see them as often as we used to. So uh, what would you guess of a high blood pressure uh, pain, hypertension patient? Um, if I gave them a prescription for high blood pressure medications, what percentage of them will actually take the medicine? What would you guess? Yeah, that's about right. One out of three. <laughs> so you think, wait a minute, how did that happen? I'm prescribing, you You got high blood pressure, I'm going to give you a, a beta blocker, I'm going to give you a diuretic, and only one out of three patients take them? Same thing is true about opioids. And so I think it's not surprising that we should monitor for efficacy and monitor for abuse. And he alluded to some of these recommends. But I'm going to talk a little bit about the pain assessment and documentation tool. Because I think it's a good tool to, to, to evaluate the effectiveness of the medication that you're giving them. Because we're looking at analgesia, we're looking at activities of daily living. Because in my mind, if you're not functioning, what difference does it make in whether or not you're managing the pain or not? So I feel better, but I'm watching TV all day. I'm watching soaps, and I'm actually not doing the things that I want to do on a daily basis. To see if there's any adverse effects. To see if they're, they're assessing, and these are questions, it's a, it's a survey. Any drug effect. And, and also, did it change your mood, obviously? The affect is equally as important. Uh, and finally, adherence. This is a very good tool. Most people are using it now. I've included a couple other tools, but I think the patient assessment, these are a couple other tools, but I think they're uh, well studied, but I think the PADT is probably better. So, the same thing is true about risk assessment as they're true about monitoring. There are no good long-term studies on any of these, but I think you still have to use them. But part of that is we need something to monitor our effect, uh, the effectiveness. And if you remember when I started, started talking, we didn't have any of these tools. We had no clue. We were just giving a ton of opioids. So I think now that we have these tools, risk assessment, monitoring, it's equally as important. Pick the tools that you like and just be comfortable with them. Uh, how many folks have heard of Narcan or Naloxone? Yay, great, excellent. We're going to talk a little bit about that because we, and I just signed the, the, uh, the standing order. Boulder, who I work for, was the first county in the state to start prescribing naloxone for people on the street. We gave them a training. If they came in, it's a harm reduction center. We, we hand out syringes. Uh, I said, we need to be giving every one of our clients who come for a harm reduction to exchange their needles a prescription for naloxone. Not necessarily for them, but their family. So they're not going to pass out and give themselves a nasal spray. It's their family member that's going to rescue them. Or it's their, they're going to rescue one of their friends. So the naloxone was never for the client who's using the opioids. It's for their family and friends. And I think if you look at it that way, it makes perfect sense that everybody who's using greater than 50 uh, morphine milli milligram equivalents should be getting a prescription for naloxone. Pharmacy, now you guys can give it out now without a prescription, can't you? So there's no reason why we can't do it. The police and safety folks were very cautious about doing this in the state. Now they take credit for it. They say, we saved how many lives? You know, because first responders, police, safety, sheriffs run out there using it, which I think is tremendous. Which probably added 
significantly to the drop in over overdose deaths because of availability of narcon and naloxone in the community. So uh, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse. There are lots of uh, prescriptions, but really the nasal spray is the most effective because it's easy to use. You don't need to draw it up on a syringe, stick a needle in somebody. You just go like this, squirt it in their nose, and it works. You could be totally passed out and not breathing and squirt this in your nose and you can see them pop back to life. It's quite, have you seen it? Okay. You've heard about it. Absolutely. You think, how is this possible? Well, because the nose is very mucousy. Uh, uh, mine is, not yours. Uh, very red and irritated and it sucks that naloxone right up. It works extremely well. Uh, very important in primary care. So let's talk a little bit about red flags. Steve alluded to this a lot. Obviously, some of our clients come in saying, uh, I want only oxycodone. It's the only one that works for me. He, he actually gave his top 10 were actually very funny, weren't they? Those, the sad part about it is they were all true. I've seen those patients. You know, I lost my dog, ate my opioid prescriptions. He was, he was out for weeks. I gave him a shot of my Narcan and he woke him right up. Um, um, but there are lots of issues around this. I remember walking across Civic Center in Denver and seeing empty bottles of, 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 of narcotics. It's a very common problem. You just need to be aware of it when you're managing patients. And just a word about responding to red flags or, or consent or agreement violations. As uh, I think Steve alluded to this extremely well, these folks who, are, who have substance use disorder are struggling. They are craving, by definition, they ignore the consequences of their behavior. They are craving. They want these drugs because of the neurophysiologic biochemical process that's going on in their brain. They cannot live without it. So they're going to do everything they can. Folks that are diverting or making a profit, that's somebody different. So I think we have to be able to, to use our risk, risk assessment, risk management, their drug testing, our multimodal team as a way of evaluating, figuring this out. Because if people are diverting it, and there are people that actually change the prescriptions, that's not allowed, and that's not acceptable. And we should be identifying those folks. So. We've talked about this, a couple words about tolerance, and I'll talk about this in a few minutes in my 201 talk. There's no ceiling in the use of opioids. People become tolerant of them. So the same amount of medication that you use today may not be the same amount of medication you need tomorrow. So it's important to know that tolerance is acceptable. There's also something called opioid hyperalgesia. And I've not seen a case, but Steve talks a lot about uh, these patients, uh, is, that, is that actually despite the number of the amount of opioids you get, patients are increasingly sensitive to uh, the uh, pain. So regardless of what you do, they're hyperalgesic. So they are overly sensitive. So actually, the indication for doing that is to stop their <laughs> opioids as opposed to continuing to increase. That's called hyperalgesia. And it has to do with the disruption of the nociceptors. And I'm not a neurophysiologist, uh, but, or a neurochemical bio, uh, physiologist, but it has to do with the disruption of those receptors. And actually, the body's response is to turn them on because... You're not, it's trying to protect you from burning your foot. 
because you don't feel it because you're on heavy doses. So that's called a helper algesia. And then, heaven forbid, that actually your disease gets worse. Whether or not it's cancer or, in my case, degenerative arthritis of my knees, um, I, I had to do something. I had to get surgery. Patients do progress. So I want to throw a shout-out to our folks in behavioral health and pain. Because I'm not an expert in this, and I think we need to be a better, do a better job of working directly together to help manage our patients. So I think because we are not effectively dealing with PTSD or adverse childhood events or anxiety or depression, we need to work with our social workers of the world um, to make sure that we're working. And I think, as you saw from Stephen Wright's talk, and he has a much more fund of, fund, fund of knowledge on, on a whole bunch of op opioids than I would ever have, nor do I want to. Because uh, <laughs> I manage uh, other issues better probably than he does, but he's a specialist, and I need his help. So, And we can still keep a relationship with our patient. So finally, here's some resources. I think the consortium's website is excellent. The provider clinical support system is excellent for a provider that like CME. I think I would encourage you to do that. And also the uh, CDC website is also very good. So let's talk really more about opioids. And I'm going to give you another patient here. So Ms. Jones is a 65-year-old woman. Notice the age, 65, Medicare eligible. That's me. So, um, Chronic joint pain in her knees, low back pain in shoulder. This is not me, by the way. Diagnosed with degenerative arthritis, degenerative changes on her x-rays. She's gotten uh, injections of hyaluronic acid. That's high algin. That's the rooster's cartilage that inject in joints. Actually, it does work. Um, she had corticosteroid injections in her knees as well as her right shoulder. She's a rigorous bicyclist. She does yoga and Pilates. She, she used, on a regular basis, takes naproxen and acetaminophen when she goes on a long ride. She's, her activities of daily living, her function is no longer what she wants to do. She can't stand up to cook because her knees are killing her, and she has difficulty combing her hair. That's not my issue, so you know this is not me. Um, uh, difficulty combing her hair with her right hand. She does not want surgery. She says, no way. She has no history of mental illness. She's not a drinker or a smoker. She asks you for a few narcotics. What do you do with this person? This is, <laughs> this is great. She was listening in the last talk. That's exactly right. We, there's no difference. Same issues, misuse, uh, appropriate use. We would do exactly the same thing. We need more history. Clearly, she, if we were to do a risk assessment here on her, her risk would be extremely low, right? She's an older person. She doesn't have risky behavior. She's using all the multi-modalities uh, of physical therapy, uh, yoga, Pilates. Um, she takes naproxen, acetaminophen. She's really done everything she can, except doing surgery, to manage her pain. So she says, I want some opioids. So we still do a risk assessment. Her risk assessment would be extremely low. We look at PDMP because that's what we do routinely in all of our clients, right? We do that. She has no uh, record of ever getting narcotics. She's tried all the alternative therapies, so 
You know, she's not a candidate for those. She's a candidate for surgery. So we're going to start her on a low dose of, of opioids. So let's talk about opioids. I'm not going to bore you with all the details of all the opioids because you can probably look those up. But I want to highlight a couple things. There's natural ones that actually, uh, and there's ones that are produced. They're all chemically related. There are other functional ones that are, actually don't act on the mu receptors, and we'll talk about that. Buprenorphine, and, and Steve talked a lot about that. It is a weak uh, 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 mu receptor. Tramadol works on, is a weak um, a mu agonist. Tependolol, weak, strong agonist, but they also do, tramadol and tependolol do different things. They inhibit the release of norepinephrine and serotonin. So they actually work on a slightly different function. function. But what do they do? Uh, and I, I don't have a fancy brain up here. I'm not a neurobiochemical physiologist or whatever they call themselves. Um, but they work on the brain. They actually have several important functions. They inhibit the C-fibers in the spinal cord. That's the transition of, of pain receptors from, from your injury. If I step on a hot uh, uh, coal, that, that communication that goes up to the brain is that C-fiber. They inhibit those peripheral nociceptors, so those sensation things on, the, on, on our skin that actually measure pain inhibits those. It stops the ascension of those pain signals. And this is the, the, the important thing that you need to know about su substance use disorder. It also st activates the reward pathway. So in addition to doing all the things it does for pain, it, it creates that craving, that want in the brain, in the amygdala, um, that says, ah, I feel good. <laughs> that euphoria that people talk about. So, and there are a lot of other things that I won't just bore you with those. Uh, uh, those, I just talked a little bit about those mu, mu receptors. There are lots of uh, routes to take this. Um, oral, transdermal, sublingual, they all have their individual properties. Ma many of the major uh, opioids, oxycodone, hydromorphone, um, uh, oxymorphone, all have different ways or routes of administration, so there's lots of ways to do these. Um, but the challenge is, is that Patient's prior experience trumps everything. So if you, in, this, in, the, in the case of the 65-year-old woman who's never used opioids, she may be extremely sensitive to opioids. So you would start small and, and give her a short trial, a very, very small amount of, of short-acting opioids. And we'll, I'll give you a recommendation here. We often have to manage adverse effects. And I'm going to talk a lot about it, managing adverse effects in this talk uh, versus pain reduction. Because it's always a dilemma, and I have a patient that will to uh, will uh, illustrate this extremely well. And Stephen alluded to this, but I do think it's important to still remember. I've been using your name in vain a lot, Steve. So uh, it's important to individualize the treatment for our patients, and that's why knowing the history, doing a very careful exam, understanding what those triggers are, understanding what their risks are important to manage those patients, because then you can totally individualize your treatment to the patient. When to choose, how to choose. Um, obviously, immediate release, short-acting uh, opioids are probably more important with occasional or intermittent pain, like the patient that I talked about. Somebody who has only breakthrough pain on a, in a, in a very serious uh, 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 either injury or exercise, it's occasional intermittent pain. 
somebody who's opioid naive or who has breakthrough pain with extended release or long acting. When to use extended release or long acting? Well, those are patients who have constant severe pain. And as we talked about earlier, the long acting and extended release have only really been studied in cancer patients or people with extreme chronic pain. But we have, unfortunately, been using them with other pain patients. So, special issues, the extended release and long acting must not be broken, crushed, chewed, and some of the prevention strategies that Steve alluded to earlier are important. There, I think, as far as I know, there are no proven abuse-resistant uh, uh, opioids. People who are craving, people who, are, who have substance use disorder, will use them however they can to, to get that, 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 that euphoria. And I think there's no evidence that extended release, long acting, are more or less effective than immediate release or short acting. So let's talk a little bit about adverse effects. The challenge with this is that, and if you're taking, you're using the PADT, the pain um, um, uh, monitoring system, uh, then you're beginning to be aware of these adverse effects. So then you can adjust, and we're going to talk about both opioid rotation and, and opioid tapering, you can adjust based on the medications that you're prescribing or the best the adverse effects. Or you can use, and we'll talk a little bit about this as well, other medications that actually be helpful. And I loved your slide about the 2020-2020, which I thought was perfect, you know, in terms of managing adverse effects with using clonidine, uh, hyocyamine, um, uh, hydroxyzine, or, or other medications to manage the adverse effects if you don't necessarily have to rotate or, or change your... But it's important to know whatever opioid that you're using that there is both adverse effects associated with some greater than the others, uh, and that it does uh, start uh, cause organ toxicity. Do you remember we talked a little bit about this a few minutes ago? We talked about tolerance, needing more drug uh, for the same effect. That's tolerance, and these are examples of, of, of tolerant-oriented toler, uh, uh, medications, 30 milligrams of oxycodone, 25 micrograms of fentanyl. Um, the, import, the important to identify that addiction potential, that substance use disorder, or the misuse of, of opioids, that impulsive, compulsive engagement in rewarding stimuli despite adverse effect consequences. Remember, these opioids stimulate that, that reward center, reward pathway in the brain, so that, that that's a constant potential effect of these. And again, the hyperalgesia that we've already talked about. Uh, Again, there are obviously issues around opioid choice. Uh, there is no reason not to assume that every single opioid that we prescribe um, uh, it doesn't have a potential for overdose. Uh, there's no ceiling for many of these things. You continue to escalate the dosage uh, until you actually reach <laughs> respiratory depression and or other adverse effects that are uncomfortable. Uh, and Steve talked about the QTC prolongation in Tersad's. Um, although I can't say the poire as well as he can. But methadone, especially if you're not a pain specialist, is really prescribed in methadone maintenance clinics. And the only one I'm aware of is at Denver Health. You guys have a very large, the biggest one. Oh, there is. But, but, but by uh, MHPN or who? Okay, so there are available in Denver, but in many smaller communities, this does not exist. You know, uh, we don't have the same kind of access to methadone as we do in the Denver metro area. Um, 
So in those patients who have uh, renal failure or hepatic failure or over the age of 65 like myself, you have to really consider lowering the doses in these patients. So how do you manage these uh, um, uh, side effects? For the most part, nausea and vomiting goes away. Uh, patients become tolerant to that and they actually get better. But if you're sedating, and I think uh, the illustration that Steve talked about earlier, if your O2 saturation is starting to decrease, specifically with methadone, it can occur with other drugs as well, then you need to consider decreasing the dose. Because then the side effects are much worse than the actual uh, medication. You can also use over-the-counter medications for puritis, benadryl, or antihistamines, for constipation, central laxatives, or increasing fluids. But you don't want to give bulky agents. Why? So if you have all this bulk and you get constipated, what's going to happen? You're going to explode. No, I see. Not, but you're going to be very uncomfortable. <laughs> so uh, switch opioids if you have urinary retention and constipation. One of the side effects I had uh, with opioids, not surgery, was urinary retention. I can tell you that a three or four mini catheters late at night because I couldn't pee was very uncomfortable. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. It does not feel good to put a catheter inside your penis. Unless you don't have a penis. But the, the, it, it hurts like hell. So people don't like that. Um, so switching opioids is probably a good thing. So if you talk about, we talked about this earlier, start low and go slow. Um, beyond three to five days in this patient uh, that we talked about earlier, uh, probably would give her a week or two supply, see how she did, follow her up in a month, see how she's doing. But I wouldn't give her more than five or ten oxycodone, five milligram tablets. No abuse potential. She's going to use them sparingly. You know, we can use the same kind of issues that we did in terms of urine drug testing. I don't think it's going to be an issue, but we could test her, and we can see how she does. But following frequently, starting low and going low is probably what we need to do. And we already talked about Senate Bill 22. So let's talk about the second patient. Mr. Smith is a 50-year-old male who recently transferred from one of your partners who just retired. Mr. Smith has been on long-acting morphine and short-acting oxycodone for breakthrough pain for the past five years. You've seen this patient, right? You've seen this patient lots of times, Steve. You have seen this patient, no? Yeah. Uh, he, su he now suffers from chronic constipation, despite what you do. So how would you manage this one? I gave you some clues already. So we would we considered decreasing his dose, right? Maybe switching opioids, and we'll talk about both opioid rotation and tapering. But we would probably have him get more active, physically active. We have him give him lots of fluids. We give him a senna, senna, not bulking agent. So there are things that we can help him. But his true problem is going to be chronic constipation from his opioids. So we're going to have to do something differently. If he started drinking alcohol, would you, how would you manage it? Pancreatitis. What's that? Absolutely. The reason why he has chronic pancreatitis is because of his alcohol drinking. So it's only going to make it worse. So this is a person who clearly is not doing very well. So this patient I would probably refer uh, but uh, to a Spain specialist, or start what we're going to talk about next. Consider, uh, again, uh, doing the same history physical, because I don't know this patient. My patient, 
my uh, colleague had this patient for a long period of time. I reassessed his pain diagnosis. I checked PDMP to see if he's getting his drug from someplace else. I developed a session, special new agreement or contract with him. I uh, talk about dose. I talk about follow-up. And I would probably emphasize the monitoring strategies more with this client. Because clearly, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, my colleague left. I don't know how long he's been seen. So managing his chronic illness, particularly his adverse effects, is probably the most important thing that I'm going to help him with. So the PADT, which we already talked about, is probably the most important thing. And lastly, documenting everything that I'm talking to with this patient is critically important because we may have to stop opioids in this person. And he's not going to be happy about that. So I'm not an expert. Dr. Stephen Wright is an expert. There are other experts out there. So I would consult early on uh, a pain specialist on how to manage this patient. Because clearly, it's not working. Whatever my colleague is doing, or I'm about to suggest, is going gonna, is gonna to be a challenge. So consulting and getting a long-term relationship with a specialist could say, hey, I have this patient. What do you suggest I do? This is what he's on. This is his morphine milicovans. He's on 150. What do you recommend? That would be very useful for a primary care provider. So if you're in that situation, I'd strongly suggest you developing a relationship with somebody who knows more than you do. Everybody knows more than I do, so that's easy for me to do. So um, it's a good concept in considering switching, and we'll talk about opioid rotation, because I do think in this patient with a chronic pancreatitis who now has chronic constipation, switching to a different uh, narcotic actually would be useful. There are opioids that are less constipating than others, um, so it's important to consider that. Um, but also to individualize the, the patient response because um, everybody's different and they're going to respond to a different opioid because of their variations and their metabolism and their immune receptors. This is a shout out for us primary care providers. When we first introduced the CDC guidelines, we just assumed that the, and I have it on my phone, that the calculators were exact. If I had X amount of morphine, I put it into the calculator, it produced, I want to switch them to, to oxycodone, that morphine milli-equivalent was exactly the same. Well, no surprise, it's not the same. It's tested with single patients in a very controlled setting. It's, it's potency of the narcotic now and how I respond to the medication. So actually, if you're going to switch opioids, consider dropping the dose 25 to 50 percent. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Because they may not be, there may be equal analgesic from a, from a research as well as potency, but they don't react the same from patient to patient. Just important to remember. Um, and uh, I think I looked at this practical pain management calculator that I saw in a different presentation, and it actually works extremely well. It's actually a little bit better than the CDC guidelines. So I encourage you to go to this website. They actually have good training. And this uh, practical pain management calculator actually takes into effect the tolerance associated with, with our narcotics. So I'd recommend, highly recommend using it. This is an example of the up-to-date opioid equivalent, equal analgesic doses. Uh, it's not helpful. Uh, it's helpful in terms of comparison, but it doesn't tell you how it's going to interact in your, in your patient's body. Again, I'm not an expert. Seek um, medical advice, uh, expert advice. Um, it's important to consider when you're tapering or considering rotating, 
start at a lower dose and then gradually increase. Um, this is one method, uh, stopping the previous sodium and starting nucleoid, do not overlap them, that's one strategy, but reassessing frequently. Another strategy is to slowly decrease one opioid and start the new one, increasing amounts of 10 to 20%, again, because you don't know the effect on the new person uh, because of their difference in metabolites or difference in memory receptors. But in decreasing maybe at a little faster rate is also useful. And if you do this, uh, some of the pain doctors, uh, believe, pain experts believe that you can probably switch to them in three to four weeks. So just a word about uh, this patient, the 50-year-old guy with chronic pancreatitis. Again, I think this patient is new to you. You always have to consider the risk versus the benefit. Uh, and you remember the issue around documentation. You are monitoring this patient. You're doing pill counts. You're doing urine drug testing. You're seeing if the patient has an effect. He's now have significant adverse effects, constipation. He started drinking again. I mean, those are all issues. If you established a good relationship and you're talking to the patient, this may be an issue that you're going to eventually have to stop his narcotics. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about tapering. But in, if a patient comes to me and says uh, that, uh, uh, I loved your top 10, by the way. <laughs> if the, if the, the, the dog ate their narcotics or they washed down the, the sink or whatever it was, then that's a patient who I would stop right away or not even prescribe. That's, there's no question to me that that's an illegal use of, of, of opioids and it's probably not be tolerated. But this patient with chronic pancreatitis who's had uh, a very high dose of, of opioids greater than 150 morphine milligram equivalents, it's going to have difficulty uh, tapering. And I, and I, I think we're, we're being critical of the opioid treatment, not necessarily the patient. And so discussing the taper plan with him is very important. So here's a couple recommendations that I found that uh, gradual tapering of 5 to 10% over a month uh, until 30%, then weekly, and 10% is probably a reasonable strategy. Uh, stopping the, or tapering the long-acting ones first, and then using immediate short-acting uh, for breakthrough. Doing a rapid taper, if you actually have to rapid taper somebody who may, you believe, based on their urine drug testing, or that they may be diverting or using it, then rapid tapering is probably okay. And then considering the adjuvant opioid withdrawal therapy, of clonidine for agitation, of hydroxyzine for pruritus, zofran for nausea and vomiting, hysocyamine for uh, abdominal pain and cramping, ibuprofen or acetaminophen as well are, are both good drugs. Other tapered plans are, of course, using uh, the, the adjuvant opioid withdrawal medications by themselves, the office-based uh, buprenorphine detoxification or methadone maintenance. All of those that Steve talked about are all... Uh, uh, very important, um, but unfortunately, some of our patients can't get off their narcotics. So, in these patients, and if you want to continue to establish a relationship, there's probably it's probably okay to continue to use at a lower level. But managing adverse effects, managing ad, uh, analgesia, all very important. And then, if all else fails and you're not able to manage them, referring to a pain uh, specialist is, is, is available if it's available. Does this site look familiar? <laughs> I stole this from Stephen. Um, in summary, you know, the risk assessment, we've talked about screening of ORT in the SOAP. We've talked about risk stratification, low, medium, and high. We've talked about risk mitigation, risk monitoring, and aberrancy management. We've already talked about naloxone, and again, we've talked about when to refer, and these are the same additional resources.
If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.